Hey, my name's Stefano Montali, and I'm a producer at Are We Europe. I know it's been quiet on our podcast feed recently, but 2022 is a new year, and we're excited to bring you some great stories once again. And that starts today with the beginning of a six-part series with the Bertelsmann Foundation North America, a nonpartisan think tank that works on the partnership between Europe and North America. I'll bet you've never heard about the Waldseemula map. It's the, well, I won't give it away. Just keep listening and you'll find out what it is in the first episode. So without further ado, please enjoy the beginning of a series we call Bridging the Atlantic. Hi, you're listening to Bridging the Atlantic, a podcast miniseries about the transatlantic relationship brought to you by the Bertelsmann Foundation North America and Are We Europe? I'm your host, Nate Christ. I'm a project manager at the Bertelsmann Stiftung in Berlin, working on Europe's economy and transatlantic relations. In this miniseries, I'll be talking to people about the transatlantic relationship today, what it is, how it affects us, and where it's going. After a turbulent period during the Trump administration that upended the transatlantic status quo, many hoped President Biden would guide the relationship back to normal. That hasn't really happened, but should it? On both sides of the Atlantic, few are satisfied with a return to normal, whether that's on climate change, rising economic inequality, or movements like Black Lives Matter. People want more from those in power to address long-term crises and injustice, and the transatlantic relationship certainly has the potential to impact all of these areas and more. So I want to talk to people about what's right and wrong with the transatlantic relationship, and whether or not it's ready for the challenges Europe and North America face today. This first episode is about taking stock of the relationship today, both the big picture and the personal side of transatlantic ties. But hold on, before I dive into things like NATO, geopolitics, and trade, I want to go back to one of the earliest artifacts of the transatlantic relationship that I could find. I think this object tells a valuable story about knowledge, perception, and how people on both sides of the Atlantic see themselves in the world. I'm talking about the Waldseemuller map, which is known as the Birth Certificate of the Americas. It was drawn by a German cartographer and scholar named Martin Waldseemuller in 1507 in a small town in eastern France called Saint-Dié-de-Vosges, not too far from Strasbourg. The Waldseemuller map is the first map of the Americas and offers a few lessons to consider as we try to map out transatlantic relations today and in the coming years. To find out more about the Waldseemuller map, I went to one of the world's foremost experts on it. My name is John Hessler, and I am the curator of the J.I. Kislak Collection of the Archaeology and the History of the Early Americas at the Library of Congress. The map collection of the Library of Congress is the largest map collection in the world, around five and a half to six million individual maps, tons of geospatial data, lots of globes, that kind of thing. So it really is one of the largest repositories of geospatial information in the world that's publicly available. The collection goes back to the earliest pieces are around from about 1280, their medieval sailing charts. And the Waltzimuller map, of course, fits in as one of the treasures of the Renaissance materials at the library. And so it's really a unique piece in a way. Obviously, it's been called the Birth Certificate of America, and I'm sure we'll get into that simply because it has the name America on it. But it is it is really one of the most important maps in the library's collection. Of course, it's probably one of the most important maps in the world. The 1507 Waldseemuller map is so important because it was the first known map to depict the Pacific Ocean as separate from the Atlantic, crucially separating the New World from known lands in Asia. Yeah, this is the incredible 
part of the map and the thing, of course, that everyone talks about. So Waltzie Mueller published this map in 1507. And in 1507, at least according to the information we have, Europeans didn't have any information about the Pacific Ocean. So Magellan is not going to come around the tip of South America into the early 1520s. And the person credited with the, quote, discovery of the Pacific Ocean, although the indigenous peoples of the Americas knew about it long before Balboa got there, is not really credited until 1513 when he crossed the Isthmus of Panama and got the first look of a European at the Pacific Ocean, at least from that side. And so really, this depiction of the Pacific Ocean, this depiction of the Americas in a way that when you see the map, you look at it and you're like, this isn't an ancient world. This is, this is sort of a modern depiction of the world. And it really, in a way, is the first modern map of the world trying to encompass the whole 360 degrees, including all of the land masses. The other thing he does, and this is one of the most important reasons the, the Library of Congress was interested in it, and really this is one of the points of the whole transatlantic negotiations over the map and, and the library purchasing the map, was this name America that's on it. So this is the first map that uses the name America. And Waltzie Mueller named it America after Amerigo Vespucci. And it's an interesting choice. He didn't pick Columbus, but he picked Amerigo Vespucci. Waldseemuller Miller knew his map would be controversial, so he wrote a book, The Cosmographia Introductio, to accompany it. He makes some really interesting points about this, which are kind of fascinating. He wrote a little teeny book called The Cosmographia Introductio, which is a guidebook to the map. Scholars have talked about this a great deal and argued over it. And in it, he says, the world is now known to be composed of four parts. Three of them are continentia, so they're connected. And he says Asia, Africa, and Europa are connected. But the fourth part, recently discovered, is now known to be completely surrounded by water. And how he knows that has, of course, uh, generated conspiracy theories, scholarly debates, all kinds of questions about where he got this information, with almost no factual or documentary data that allow us to decide that. The historical importance of the map is undeniable. But to be clear, it's not accurate by today's standards. The real breakthrough, though, was in the Western Hemisphere, and by that I mean the very inclusion of continents in the Western Hemisphere was a first for a European map. Still, beyond the long eastern coastline of the Americas, there's a lot missing. It looks as if you were printing a map of North and South America, and your printer just ran out of ink after the eastern coastline. Amazingly, however, the Pacific Ocean is there. This discovery essentially creates the transatlantic space by depicting the Americas and defining the limits of the Atlantic Ocean. I asked Dr. Hessler to tell us more about Waltzie Mueller's map of the world. Basically, Waltzie Mueller is trying to display the Americas and the new discoveries as they were known at the time. He displays Europe and Africa and Asia in a very different light. The Europe that you see and the Asia and the Africa that you see on the map are really from Ptolemaic atlases. In other words, they really predate Waltzie Mueller's time a little bit. And so some of the information that we have that, that he's portraying, the way Europe looks, the way Africa and the way Asia look, is older than the geography he probably would have known about. Had he had access to sailing charts at the time, he would have portrayed Europe in a much better light than he does on the map. And he's really drawing this contrast between the sort of what wasn't known by Ptolemy, so what wasn't known by Greek geographers, and what was known of the world by Europeans, and then what is now known of the world. So he's kind of trying to bring this together and draw a contrast between sort of the old geography and the new geography. And that really is the kind of purpose of the map. 
So the map doesn't quite match what was already known even at the time Martin Waldseemuller created it, particularly concerning the size and placement of the continents Africa, Europe, and Asia. But it was apparently a conscious decision to overtly mark a break with the geography of the ancient world by mimicking the Ptolemaic map of the ancient world with the startling new addition of the Americas and the Pacific Ocean. Talking with Dr. Hessler really made me think about the purpose of maps. I'm so used to having the ultimate utility map on my mobile phone, an extremely accurate map of the world that will help me find anything and get from A to B. But maps are also powerful tools for forming perceptions of one's place in the world and for putting places and even time periods in contrast with one another. It really is a map for humanists, uh, a map to say, here is the geography of the world. And that really is what Walt Mueller is doing in the Cosmographic Introductio in his little book. And he actually, on the 1507 map, on, a, on an inset down on the right-hand corner, he, he writes sort of, and I'm going to paraphrase here, if you're not familiar with the geography of the new discoveries, do not be afraid of what you see on this map. Do not be concerned because this is the way you will come to see your world. He knows he's doing something radical. Uh, he knows he's, he's putting the new in with the old. And it's quite a project. The map's framing of the transatlantic space is just the beginning of its importance to the transatlantic relationship. The map now sits at the Library of Congress in Washington, D.C., but for centuries it was lost and forgotten, suddenly found again in 1901, folded inside a book in a castle in southern Germany. So just how did it emerge from obscurity in the 16th century to land in the Library of Congress in 2003? Well, it's an interesting story that began just after the discovery of the map. So in 1901, it was discovered by Joseph Fisher in the Wolfegg Castle. And in 1903, Joseph Fisher took the book apart to make a lithograph of the map. And so he did this lithograph of the 1507-1516 map and published a, basically a facsimile in 1903. And then it was all put back together. But around that time, the then Prince of Wolfegg offered it to the Librarian of Congress, Henry Putnam. So the first offer of the map purchased for the Library of Congress was in 1903-1904, where the Prince of Wolfegg offered the map to the library for $1 million, which at the time was way, way, way more than many, many budgets of the whole library itself for acquisitions. And so it was passed upon at that point. It came to the interest of several specialists through the years, all of whom thought that the map belonged on display somewhere. And they began in the late 90s, even a little bit before that, kind of negotiating with the then Prince of Wolfegg, the grandson of the first one who offered it to the library for its purchase. And finally, an agreed-upon price was $10 million, the most expensive object the library has ever purchased, the large, most expensive single object. So there are a lot of transatlantic negotiations about what it would mean for this piece of German cultural patrimony to come to the United States, what would be the reasons for allowing it to leave the country. There was lots of fundraising and things like that, lots of negotiations on display. And then finally, in 2003, Everything was sort of in place, and uh, in a ceremony, Chancellor Merkel officially handed the map over to the Library of Congress after all of that. But then it does become this sort of important transatlantic object that comes to the library in a very interesting way that reflected the friendship of these two countries, the alliances of these two countries. Certain things were noted, the rebuilding of Germany, uh, the help with that by the United States after the Second World War and, and the strengthening of those alliances were mentioned in Chancellor Merkel's speech when she handed the map over officially in, in Washington, D.C. 
So the map went from being a cartographic innovation lost to history to a piece of cultural heritage playing a star role in transatlantic relations. The map's journey ends, for now, after an amazing trip across the Atlantic to the continent it was the first to depict for European eyes, reflecting the trust and historical bonds between the United States and Germany. Since its creation 500 years ago, the Waldseemuller map's usefulness as a map has diminished, but its importance in connecting Europe and the Americas has only grown. Moving on from the Waldseemuller map to more current events. In Bridging the Atlantic, I want to take a snapshot of the transatlantic relationship today and try to fill in a little bit more of the map as we look ahead to the future. Europe and North America and their relationship with each other is always changing, and it's remarkable that despite the constant flux and periods of disarray, the relationship has strengthened over the last seven plus decades. Today, proponents of the transatlantic relationship are optimistic about its future, and with good reason. Just listen to these transatlantic leaders back in the beginning of 2021. Here's newly elected U.S. President Joe Biden. The transatlantic alliance is back, and we are not looking backward. We are looking forward together. It comes down to this. The partnership between Europe and the United States, in my view, is and must remain the cornerstone of all that we hope to accomplish in the 21st century, just as we did in the 20th century. Here's the then German Chancellor Angela Merkel. So, together, we must define the strategic challenges. The agenda is clear. We need to come up with ways of doing this together. Our interests will not always converge. We shouldn't be clear about that. Where there are differences, we should talk about them, frankly. But the main principles, the values, our belief in democracy, there we broadly agree we have broad foundations to build on. And here's French President Emmanuel Macron that the first thing we need to do, Europeans and Americans, as we now have a common will to work together again, I think that we need an effective multilateralism, a useful multilateralism, multilateralism for climate, to preserve our democracies, and more specifically, when we are talking about preserving and protecting the freedom of speech. Those remarks from U.S. President Biden, French President Macron, and German Chancellor Merkel were for many a welcome turn in an unsteady transatlantic relationship. And now there's a clear chance to get, quote, back to normal, which means more or less cooperating multilaterally in good faith and pursuing a common set of foreign policy and security goals in the 21st century. But once again, back to normal might not be good enough. What does normal for the transatlantic relationship even mean? I don't think normal is the right measurement because there is so much more the two sides can do together to have a more meaningful and strong relationship. And I think we have an appetite for that with this administration in Washington. That's Rachel Rizzo, non-resident senior fellow in the Europe Center at the Atlantic Council in Washington, D.C. I spoke with her to hear more about what the transatlantic relationship should look like to achieve its goals. What would you say is the sort of short list of the most important structures, institutions, meeting points that form the foundation of the transatlantic relationship today? Well, I think if you look at history, NATO has really been the foundational institution that has undergirded the transatlantic relationship. But as I've written before, I think that that 
causes a situation in which we view the transatlantic relationship through an overly militaristic lens. While I believe that NATO is extremely important, and I think that it's an excellent forum for cooperation, I also think given the strategic issues that face the transatlantic partners today, there are other institutions through which we have to focus on cooperating. I think the World Trade Organization is one of those. I also think that transatlantic relationship on climate and approaching the climate crisis in a way that actually gets us to where we want to go in terms of our Paris climate agreements. I also think that technology regulations are going to be really important. And those conversations are not meant to be had through NATO as the primary forum. It's much more meaningful to have those conversations through multilateral institutions, through bilateral meetings of you know high-level individuals from the U.S. and the EU. Looking at climate as an example, back in the beginning of the year, French President Macron said that they needed to return to a meaningful multilateralism or effective multilateralism. And I think Mario Draghi echoed that with the G20. What do you think the United States and Europe need to do to keep this train of meaningful multilateralism going? Meaningful ma- multilateralism is a sort of a difficult term to define. But I think that if we want a more meaningful relationship, the United States needs to be more more comfortable with the European Union being a more meaningful actor. And I think Macron is the perfect example of what that would look like. We see him pushing a much more forward-leaning agenda for Europe, both in Europe's neighborhood, like in the Sahel, uh, in terms of foreign policy, in terms of climate, in terms of technology. And what has happened in the past is that the United States says in theory that we support stronger Europe and we support a more forward-leaning Europe, but then the policies and statements that actually are made officially don't really back that up. And so we saw in the Trump administration, for example, when the European Union tried to implement PESCO, or Permanent Structured Cooperation, which is this cooperation mechanism at the EU level on a defense and military and security projects, the United States immediately jumped in and said, well, this is going to undermine NATO. We don't want it to become a protectionist vehicle for the European Union. And so we get really defensive when the EU tries to be more forward-leaning or creative thinking in terms of how they interact as a multilateral block, right? And so I think that the United States needs to accept Europe as a more forward-leaning actor. And at the same time, the European Union needs to understand that that is what is necessary of them to be a stronger partner to the United States. Historically, this has been sort of a senior-junior partnership, although no one, that's not really how it's defined. But in reality and how it plays out, that's usually what happens. In order for it to be a more equal partnership, which I think a lot of us would like it to be, the European Union does need to be a stronger actor geopolitically, in terms of foreign policy, in terms of security and defense. And I think we're getting there. It's not easy. It's going to take a long time. But I think that is what an effective multilateral policy would look like. Changing gears a little bit to the idea of values. There seems to be almost two different kinds of transatlantic relationships right now based on where you stand on the U.S. political spectrum. And I kind of wonder that when there's this emphasis on values being the basis of the transatlantic relationship, it's being set up for this dichotomy. Are values still a strong basis for the transatlantic relationship? Should they be in the center of the discussion or should it be something else? 
This is a tough one because I think in practice, you can't really cooperate just based on values. You can use that as a starting point to launch meaningful cooperation in other areas. But I think when you use values as the center of a cooperative relationship, it creates an opportunity for the bottom to sort of fall out. And I think that that's what we saw during the four years of the Trump administration. You know, in the United States here, we still have, you know, there were 75 million Americans who voted for Donald Trump. There's a huge swath of Americans who have believed this quote unquote big lie that the election in 2020 was stolen from Trump and that Biden is governing on basically an illegal mandate. You also see things like that happening in Europe where populist leaders like Orban and Duda in Poland are popular and gaining traction and this far-right candidate in France is gaining traction as well. And so you really question what kind of values we're talking about. Those are meaningful for a lot of people, but swaths of the public in various communities between Europe and the United States believe in a fundamentally different set of values. And so I think that in order to have a cooperative relationship on substantive issues, we should talk about those substantive issues and that's how we should approach them. Do you think that's true also on the European side at all? Are there powerful players in Europe who are also suffering from this, a partisan transatlantic relationship? So in the United States, I do think that the transatlantic relationship was sort of a political football during the four years of the Trump administration. Prior to Trump, if you had gone to like an everyday voter in somewhere like Utah, where I'm from, or Ohio or Nebraska, and been like, what do you think of German leader uh, Merkel? They would have been like, I'm not really sure. But because Trump talked about someone like Merkel so much as like free riding off of American security guarantees and not being an honest partner, you'd have conversations with people and all of a sudden they'd bring up Merkel in a conversation as a bad actor. And you're like, wait a minute, how did we get here? So you sort of saw that issue pulsate throughout the United States. And I think that that has happened in Europe in some cases, especially given how hostile the former administration was to European leaders. And so this sort of anti-America message, I think, resonates for some people. At least it did when I was living in Germany from 2019 to 2020. Of course, the people that I talked to in Germany were, were mostly transatlanticists, but the message that I got at times was that it's not that America was a dishonest actor, but America was not seen as the closest partner of, of Europe anymore for, for many reasons. And I worry that that sort of approach is not easy to come back from. And, and I worry that that's going to affect the transatlantic relationship in the long run, especially when you have leaders that run on sort of an anti-American message. Looking ahead to the future of the transatlantic relationship, you mentioned you sort of hoped that it would evolve, that it would change. What are the major challenges that the transatlantic relationship needs to address and what kind of transformation do you hope to see it undertake so that it can meet those challenges? The problem that I worry about is at a pretty basic and fundamental level. So when you look at the last 70 years, I mean, we we haven't seen a time when the United States and Europe haven't been each other's 
closest partners in terms of foreign policy, trade, security, defense, you name it. And I think a lot of that is partially based on the fact that Americans have such close ties to Europe and and vice versa. I mean, here in the U.S., a lot of us have grandparents, for example, who immigrated from Europe to the United States. A lot of us have grandparents or parents who fought alongside Europeans in various wars. And so you sort of have this connection to Europe at a fundamental level because you have a personal connection to it. Instead of appealing to values, we do need to talk more about the substantive issues that are going to propel the transatlantic relationship forward. And we do need to make sure that those issues resonate with the upcoming generation of decision makers and thinkers. So I mentioned this at the beginning, issues like climate, which is the existential threat of our time. When you think about things like technology regulation and how big tech companies shape the information environment, when you think about human security and climate forced migration and the issue of racism that we still deal with on both sides of the Atlantic, I think all of these issues are important to talk about and they should be, you know, sort of the basis on which we build the transatlantic relationship in the future. Do you think this next generation, whether it's millennials or Gen Z, do you get the impression that they will find it easier to cooperate or harder? You know, when you look at millennials and Generation Z, these are the first two generations, young millennials in particular, that have A, grown up with every bit of information that you could ever think of, like right at your fingertips. And B, in terms of having a near peer competitor, I know we're talking about China more and more these days, but when I was growing up, like this was just, this was not a conversation you had. The United States was in a unipolar moment and it was going to stay like that for a long time. And that does, I think, change the way that millennials and Generation Z think about foreign policy and think about cooperation. I do think that the information environment in which we're living today makes connecting much easier, which is obvious, but it also changes the way that people think about other cultures and other potential competitors because they have so much cultural information at their fingertips. You know, I was looking at information for this book chapter that I was writing. And when you asked millennials and Generation Z what they think about threats facing the United States, they said things like climate change. They said things like the spread of nuclear weapons. They didn't say China and they didn't say Russia. And so I do think that we have a basis for much more meaningful cooperation going forward. And I don't think it's going to be difficult. I just think it's going to look different and it's going to be approached in a different way. When it comes to those threats, we spoke about the challenges and sort of slightly different are the threats to the transatlantic relationship. What do you see as the main threats? Are they internal? Are they external? Are they something strange like complacency or is it maybe cyber terrorism, something far more aggressive? How would you chart the threats to the transatlantic relationship? Well, I think you need to divide them between internal threats and external threats. So in terms of external threats, do I think that Russia is going to roll tanks over the Baltics? No. Do I think that energy security or energy is going to be or can be weaponized in a way that could be extremely destructive? Absolutely. Uh, the same goes for potential cyber attacks against you know, both the United States and Europe and Western democracies in terms of election meddling. But I also think internal issues are going to be threatening to both sides. And we sort of touched on this a little while ago. 
When you have a large swath of a name that population, U.S., France, Poland, Hungary, Germany, Italy, you know, you can choose that doesn't fundamentally trust or believe in the institutions that are meant to undergird society and that are meant to support them. Then, like I mentioned before, the foundation starts to fall out. And then where do you go from there? Where do you go when a major percentage of a population does not fundamentally accept like democratic rule because they feel like their voices aren't heard? That's what I think is going to be most destructive. And that's, I think, where we're going to find the most difficulties in the coming years. I want to ask this question, but I feel like we've already mapped it out. Does the transatlantic relationship have a positive future? Do you think that it will remain relevant in this more increasingly bipolar world with U.S. and China? Is this going to be the axis around which commerce and security turns, or is that going to shift somewhere else? I think it's going to be extremely meaningful. I think that the transatlantic partners share a history and share ties that are difficult, if not impossible, to replicate elsewhere. I also think that it's possible that the relationship becomes much more transactional as we move forward. We're going to see China emerge as, uh, it already has emerged, as uh, a huge economic player, a military player, a geopolitical player. And that's something that we're already talking about and contending with, but it's going to become a much more salient issue in the coming years and decades. And that's an opportunity for the United States and Europe to cooperate It also provides enough friction that it could create issues between the two sides as well. But I think that the issues facing the globe today lay a really strong foundation for cooperation between the United States and Europe. And we've talked about a lot of what those things might look like. And so as long as we have people that still care about it and care about strengthening it and care about focusing on it, then yeah, I do think that it's going to continue to be an important part of both U.S. policy and European policy as well. I don't think that's going anywhere. With the Waldseemuller map, I was intrigued by the idea of how a new map totally changed Europeans' perspectives of the world. And in general, I was intrigued by the idea of maps being used not just to inform about the present, but to comment on the past and the future. I think you can see where I'm going here. I was wondering what a map of transatlantic relationships today would look like. So I asked my next guest, if we were to draw a map of transatlantic relations today, what would it look like? Well, I was thinking more of the the painting, the scream, <laughs> would be the one. <laughs> That's the first thing that comes to mind. I'm Soraya Sarhadi Nelson. I'm the host of Common Ground, which is a talk show podcast. I'm also a longtime uh, foreign correspondent who has worked for a variety of outlets, including NPR, which is, uh, of course, National Public Radio, and the Los Angeles Times and Night Ritter newspapers. If there's something about the transatlantic relationship that makes people want to scream, it might be disagreements over values. The transatlantic relationship is often called a community of values, but the fact is that Americans and Europeans just don't agree on everything, never have, never will. But that's not the end of the world. It's how we hash out these differences that matters. Soraya Sarhadi Nelson is trying to do just that in her podcast called Common Ground, 
She records the show in Berlin and seeks to bring people together to talk about things they might not usually agree on. Well, uh, the show deals with a variety of hot-button topics, as we like to call them, things that people are talking about. Transatlantic relations are obviously one of them. The format really caught my attention, since talking about points of disagreement is going to be indispensable to further strengthening the transatlantic relationship, and it's a muscle that needs training. I think it's an art form that's lost, the idea to have a conversation with someone that you don't necessarily agree with, but that you can maybe learn from and you respect each other's positions. I mean, it seems that that is increasingly lost. I remember, for example, the shows that used to exist in the United States, uh, something like you know Jerry Springer's show, where it seemed like the louder you could get, the better it was for the broadcast. And, and that's just not a way to hold conversations at a time when there are so many things going on in the world of great importance especially globally and transatlantically. And I think in Germany, especially, it's been very difficult, for example, with the past administration to sort of have a dialogue that lends itself to that. So with our broadcast, it's not like everyone's always going to agree with everything that's said, but if we can learn from each other and be respectful about it, um, I think it's you know a big step forward <laughs> in terms of uh, relations. Soraya has lived in Germany for nine years now, coming here as Berlin correspondent for NPR. I asked her how the country has changed since then. Well, certainly now, I mean, Angela Merkel, who has been the person uh, that everybody associates with Germany, is no longer going to be around. That's kind of a scary and exciting prospect, I think, for people who live here to see uh, how Germany is going to proceed without her. Is, you know, is it still going to be relevant? Is it still going to be a consensus builder when, when you're talking about the EU or other places? You know, what happens next? Um, also, there seems to be a much greater sense of uh, uncertainty, I find, uh, in, in Berlin and in Germany about what what happens next with in terms of our, our ability to have places to live, to have jobs. You know, everyone seems to be feeling more uncertain about the future. That's a, that's a kind of uncomfortable feeling. And I don't think it's unique to Germany, but I definitely have felt it here. Do you have any moments that stick in your memory both good or bad, from the past nine years. Perhaps these are moments that kicked off a particularly hectic week in your job or prompted tough conversations with German friends. Anything that sticks in your mind? Well, certainly the election of Donald Trump and then even more so the arrival of Rick Grinnell uh, was a, what I would characterize as a low point in uh, transatlantic relations because people just were not used to this person. You know, when I say this person, I mean Donald Trump and the people you know, that he were here on his behalf, like Rick Grinnell, and the way they would talk to them. It was just not a, something that was comfortable for Germans. This sort of like everything is wonderful, America and Germany will always be together, it was more a German perception than an American one. So it was really jarring to sort of have these people here who didn't know how to communicate in the diplomatic language that I think people have been accustomed to. And that, that certainly sent off a flurry. I mean, I had a lot of coverage I had to do then. Also, the NSA scandal, I think that was another sense of betrayal that really created uh, issues. The war in Ukraine was another one, and if we want to talk about uh, where I had to really kick into high gear. Germany was just very uncomfortable with these sort of things that were happening. And also, for example, the consequences like the refugees. And that also set off a flurry of coverage and just sort of a self-analysis that Germans were doing and that I was trying to bring to Americans to see. I think there was this feeling that Joe Biden would become president and everything would kind of go back to the way it was, even though politicians and people were saying they weren't expecting that, but they were certainly acting like they were expecting it. And so I think uh, the, the need for dialogue about what is it that America needs and wants, what is it that Germany needs and wants, and the EU by extension, you know, how do they communicate and how do they meet? I mean, do we end up with scenarios like the 
nuclear submarine deal with France and, and, you know, do we have, is this how our approach is going to go or are we going to find a new way to communicate? I don't think we've found it yet. It's interesting that you said that people are saying it's not going back to normal, but they're acting as if they expect it to. Do you think it should go back to normal? And perhaps what is that normal? There is no normal. You know, we shouldn't wax nostalgic about how things were better because there have always been challenges. Uh, We need to think forward. You know, we have modern day challenges. We are seeing more communication. I mean, obviously, uh, with Trump administration, it was a whole different dynamic. But I do think Germans, they need to sort of understand that it's, it's not going to be the relationship that it was in the past. When it comes to those conversations, so you said a goal of your podcast, Common Ground, is to bring people together who potentially disagree about something, both in the US and in Germany and Europe as a whole. There's a lot of disagreement on how to tackle major challenges today, from climate change to defense spending. Is it a big problem for transatlantic relations that there seems to be two Americas talking with two Europes or maybe more Europes? Well, I like to be an optimist (laughs) rather than a pessimist. So I'd like to think there is a way, especially with the level of communication that has gone on in the past, there is room for it. I just think we need to understand ourselves better. This goes for the Europeans as well as Americans. I don't, we're, we're not a monolith. I think that's become painfully evident. The European Union has been accused and Germany has been accused of sort of having their heads in the sand about what's happening with the other part of Europe, you know, this this sort of illiberal democracy or whatever that's rising. And they have to come to terms with it. And I also think the same about America, where we need to understand whether it's the Biden administration now. And I think these recent elections have been a wake up, a badly needed wake up call. But uh, you have to have that self-identification before you can start really fixing the issues with the transatlantic ones. And and I, I think it's going to take a while, but I, I do think the realization or recognition is there. At least people are talking about that. I'm optimistic, as I say, that there will be some resolution, you know, and let's say in the end, if both sides that aren't necessarily prone to wonderful transatlantic relations, whether it's the liberal democracies of, of Eastern Europe, or whether it's uh, the Trump nation, you know, that's sort of that may come back to power. You know, we, we have to recognize that, that they don't see transatlantic relations the same way. And maybe they need to take that into consideration. They can't just act like, again, it's a monolith that America is this and Germany is this or Europe is this and that uh, no nobody else's opinions count. I think this, the recognition, the self-recognition and identification and coming to terms with that is very vital to any sort of future transatlantic relationship. Definitely. And it seems like Something that could really help is the U.S. needs to figure out where it stands on its democracy, voter suppression, things like that. And the EU needs to figure out where it stands on illiberal democracies before, in a sense, that we can sort out what transatlantic relations can truly look like, because otherwise we're going to have these kind of parallel tracks. And that's certainly what's happening (laughs) at the moment. So, But it's just going to be interesting. I mean, I think Angela Merkel would have been someone to maybe help guide that conversation. She's good at the art of compromise and consensus without making herself sort of stand out. And while Olaf Scholz is the continuity candidate, and it's just unclear whether he's going to be able to continue that dynamic. Is Joe Biden going to be around long enough? I mean, he's a he's somebody who understands the art of diplomacy and conversation, but is he going to be around long enough to be able to do that? So we're in Berlin, and it's been the site of many defining transatlantic relationships starring U.S. presidents. And from Biden's recent trip, what struck me was that it was pretty quiet. He went to COP26. He went to G20. He was coming on the shadow of the, this AUKUS submarine fiasco, but he didn't make a huge statement. He didn't give a huge speech that really transformed the narrative. 
maybe we shouldn't expect from Biden, but we certainly, I think, could have used. And I wonder if you think that this was a wasted opportunity for a U.S. president to really set the narrative in his own way. I don't know about wasted opportunity. I mean, I think he did it from the American vantage point. And he did, you know, end up, we did have the photo ops with his arm around Macron and Macron's arm around him and his arm around Merkel and, and vice versa. You know, so I think the conversations that took place, his apology, for example, I think that actually spoke volumes. But again, I think we go back to the Europeans or Germans in particular, expecting something from the U.S. that just isn't anymore. Europe is not the priority of foreign diplomacy issue for the United States. The transatlantic relationship is important, but America has sort of moved on. You know, they have other fish to fry. I think what was not said should be a wake-up call to Europe. I mean, this expectation that they have that someone's going to come in and make everything wonderful again isn't going to happen when, you know, the, the priorities are different. So looking ahead to the future, we've talked about some of the foundations. What do you see as some major challenges coming up? What are some future hot topics, perhaps, for Common Ground? Well, I think immigration and particularly refugees is going to be a big situation for Europe. Again, I, I don't think you can build as many walls as you want. You can have camps in, in the border countries. It's not going to change the reality that Afghanistan is going to be a country where you're going to see a lot of people pushing out, you know, because famine, because of, uh, well, not war in that sense anymore, the war on terror, but because of, you know, the people who are in charge there. I mean, you're going to, you're going to see this big migration that, that has to be dealt with. So I think that how we come to terms with that uh, is, is something we're going to be talking about. A housing is going to continue to be a big issue. I think affordable housing um, is something that a lot of us in Europe used to sort of look, point to the U.S. and say, that's more of a problem in the U.S. We don't have these problems here. But I think we've seen with expropriation, rent caps, and, and other experiments, shall we say, that Berlin has tried to lead the way on, that it's not really solving the problem. And it's a very real problem, you know, where salaries and jobs or opportunities for housing, I should say, are not keeping up. Basically, you have a, a dearth of, of affordable housing, and this is going to continue to be a huge issue here. Other things, obviously, uh, you know, what happens with the changing political scenario in the United States? How is that going to affect relations with Europe and the vice versa? You know, how is this new German government, our new European governments, including the ones in the East that are increasingly gaining power or say and sway? You know, how is that going to change uh, that relationship and data privacy, uh, social media? How do we deal with that? Obviously, there are no easy solutions and no viable solutions that have come up. Um, and I think we'll see more, you know, are basically Google and Facebook and Twitter. I mean, are these going to continue to dominate the political and conversation sphere the way they are now? You know, or, or how do we come to terms with that? These are some of the core issues that sort of jumped to mind and climate, if I haven't mentioned climate already, because that is every day in our face, you know, the changes that we're seeing and the inability of countries, uh, including to Germany, to really come up with a plan that deals with it. Fridays for Future was able to get the German constitutional court you know, to say that, hey, your plan is just not good enough and you need to do more for the youth. Um, and so I think we'll probably be having conversations along those lines. That about wraps up our first episode. Thanks for listening, and please subscribe so you don't miss our upcoming episodes, including our next one on free speech, technology, and communication culture. Before we end, however, I want to touch upon one more thing. When it comes to the transatlantic relationship, there are many aspects. Economic, cultural, security, common interests, common values. But one thing that's underestimated is perhaps the personal side of transatlantic relations. 
there are ample links across the Atlantic, from educational exchange to deeply integrated economies that yield transatlantic jobs, to holiday travel and familial connections. I asked our guests what transatlantic relations mean to them personally. Here's Rachel Rizzo. Gosh, I've never been asked that question before. I mean, it is personal to me. Both of my great-grandparents on my mother's side were immigrants from Greece. My grandfather on my dad's side was an immigrant from Italy. And so I sort of grew up in a culture that was heavily European-influenced. When I think of my family, that's sort of how I was raised. And so that, in, in a sense, is really meaningful to me. But it's also been a huge part of my work and my passion in terms of what I do professionally. And so being able to really think about how the relationship can be strengthened, really thinking through the problems that it faces and talking to people in D.C. and outside of D.C. and in different European capitals. I mean, you see people that have dedicated their lives to this. And that, I think, encourages me and encourages other younger people that have decided to pursue this line of work. And so it's something that I love to do and I can't see myself doing anything else, at least not right now. And here's Soraya Sarhadi Nelson. That's a good one. (laughs) What does it mean to me personally? For me, it's watching two old-time friends sort of come together. I mean, I want to feel, and I do feel that America is my home and Germany is my home. And I don't like to see it when both homes are uncomfortable with each other. I do think it's not in the best place. It's certainly not in a place where I thought it would be. Um, If somebody had asked me in 2012, this is what it's going to look like in 2021. I don't know that I would have thought it was going to be this frayed and fragile, if you will. We've always gotten along since for for a very long time, for decades, for most of our lifetimes. It seems to me that we should be able to foster conversation again. And even if, again, just like my talk show, you don't have to agree on everything. You can have different viewpoints, but let's just keep the conversation going and make it a a positive one. That's what I hope for, for it. Um, It's not what I'm seeing right now. Bridging the Atlantic is a production of the Bertelsmann Foundation North America in Washington, D.C. and the Brussels-based Arwe Europe. Check out the Bertelsmann Foundation's work on transatlantic relations covering democracy, politics and society, future leadership, and our digital world at bfna.org. Arwe Europe's library of magazines, podcasts, and more can be found at arweeurope.com. Thank you to John Hessler and Maria Pena of the Library of Congress, Rachel Rizzo of the Atlantic Council, and Soraya Sarhadi Nelson of Common Ground for making this first episode possible. Bridging the Atlantic is edited and produced by Stefano Montali and written and produced by me, Nate Christ. This episode contains recordings of speeches from the Munich Security Conference 2021 via France 24 and Deutsche Welle. Hey, it's Stefano again. What'd you think of the episode? Let us know on social media or by emailing me, Stefano, that's S-T-E-F-A-N-O, at reeurope.eu. Episode two is coming very soon. As always, thanks for listening and keep an eye on the feed. There are a lot of new stories coming your way.